And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Friday, May 26th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, we conclude our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. How the Bureau of Prisons Director, Colette Peters, plans to raise its employee engagement scores. Plus, a one-time inmate shows the federal prison system can and often does achieve its mission. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, one of the biggest obstacles for small businesses who want to do work for the Defense Department, it's the need for a facility clearance. It comes down to the old chicken or egg debate. A small business needs a facility clearance to win contracts, but it can't get a facility clearance unless it has a sponsor on a contract. Carlin Kapenos is Director of Small Business Programs for the Defense Information Systems Agency. She tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about how DISA is trying to cut through this conundrum. The easiest way, the fastest way for a small business to get a clearance is being sponsored by a prime contractor that has the contract that requires a clearance, has a subcontract, and then they can go through the process. So that's the fastest way. What we're doing specifically at DISA is we've changed our participation plan. We have a template for anybody that's proposing small and large that it's part of our evaluation process when we're doing IDIQ contracts. But one thing that we've added into it is that the participation plan needs to include two companies, two small businesses, that in the first year of the contract, should they win it, that they will sponsor for the clearance. We put our first solicitation out for that, and we got zero pushback. So we got the names of the companies they're going to. So we think that's a win. We'll see how it goes. We also briefed this at the Winter Triad, which is a a group of large businesses, small businesses, and government agencies that engage in conversation. And it wasn't as popular in that But, you know, a lot of, I got a lot of feedback from that, from other agencies and other large, like, wanting that information, how did we do it? So I'm hoping maybe we'll get some forward movement that it becomes a standard practice because that, again, for us and for a lot of the other agencies is the number one barrier to entry for small businesses. And it's almost the chicken or the egg, right? If you don't have a facility clearance, you can't bid. Well, how do you bid if you don't have a facility clearance? So it's this big challenge. What, what goes into getting a facility clearance? Is it, is it it's paperwork, it's background, it's, it's what, generally speaking? What our office is actually doing about it is, is that we are hosting, and we do this once a year, where we host a training session for all small businesses that want to know what the process is, what they need to do. And so we invite DCSA, Defense Counterintelligence Security Agency, we invite them to come and do the briefing. And then we also invite our security folks, too, to add how it works within DISA. And so that's going to be June 13th. And if anybody wants to sign up, they can send us an email um, at DISA, small business, all one word, at mail.mil, and ask to be um, on the list to get the, uh, the team's um, invite. I'm glad that you guys are are publishing and holding that because I think, again, folks don't know what they don't know and and probably going through it themselves is challenging. You mentioned that this is kind of a a new uh, initiative, for lack of a better word, to to really kind of hold these prime contractors more accountable to to the clearances. Previously, did DISA not ask for this, for, for the primes and subs? Was this something that came to your office as a suggestion from 
one of the program folks from small businesses. How did you guys come around to say, hey, this is an initiative we should take on? It actually came from a conversation with my peers, my peer from NSA. He's like, what are you guys doing? How can you make them do this? Can we make them do this? And I said, well, we can certainly ask them to do it. And so that's what DISA has taken the approach. We want and need our large businesses to do this. And so now we've asked them. We've asked them to commit to it, put it in a documentation that's part of a contract. So the expectation is they're going to do it. As you said, you just kicked it off. You've got a couple contracts out there with this and, and progress is being made. So obviously something to check back in with you as we go forward. Let's take a broader step back. Uh, the other big piece when we talk about subcontracting is is holding both DISA and, and the, the folks who make contract awards, contracting officers and the like, and then as well as primes around small business contracting, subcontracting goals. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing around there? I know, for instance, I've talked to the Army folks, and, and they're trying to hold folks more accountable. How is DISA going down a very similar path? When we have our large contract single award or multi-award, we ask the contracting officers can our office help you monitor it? And they all say yes, because they have a whole lot of things they need to do. And if we're willing to help them with one part, they're like, thank you. And so for our really large contracts like GSMO, GSMO2, SETI and Encore, we require all the contract holders to send in a biannual report on subcontracting, what they've done um, and who they've done it with and what, what scope of work and what dollar amount. And so those reports come to us. We help look at them. We help look against their proposed goals, against their subcontracting plan, and also just to help the contracting officers when they do their yearly CPARs to have the information on whether they're compliant, whether they're submitting the reports, whether they're working with us on things like our matchmaking. We invite all of those contract holders to have tables to host to meet it. So if they're not making their goals, what were they doing? Did you at least make a good faith effort to come to our event and meet with small businesses that want to do business with us. Biannual, twice a year, just to confirm that? Yes, yes, twice a year. That's always one of those terms, is it every other year? But anyways, I appreciate that. The other thing is, so what happens if you do find that a large business is not meeting their goals? If they said 45% and they're at 30%, or if they said 60% and they're at 20%, what do you do? What are some of those steps that your office and or the program office takes to go, hey, contractor X, you're not living up to snuff? We can do a couple things. One, when we evaluate the small business participation factor, we can take that information and include it in, in how they're rated. So if they're goose eggs across the board, maybe that's going to affect their ability to win the contract at hand. But more importantly, our office, when we provide the data to the contracting officers for their CPARs, but more instantly, when, when an issue arises or a question arises, we can actually ask to meet with that large business. For example, just yesterday, I had a meeting with one of our SETI contract holders to say, hey, I'm not sure you're really on a trajectory to be meeting these goals. Can we have a conversation? And how can we work together to ensure that you're meeting your goals and we're meeting our goals. And so we looked at ways to work together. They also provided us information on what they're doing immediately to execute more small business subcontracts. Sometimes that meeting is all you need to kind of jumpstart the process. Maybe folks are unaware that they're not doing it or they had plans and then something fell through, whether it was the, on the prime side or the sub side or the work itself. Is, is there a and I know this is hard to say because everyone's a little different. Is there a, usually a reason why 
large businesses struggle with subcontracting goals? Is it a lack of accountability, meaning the agency's not holding them accountable, or is it usually other factors that come into play? I mean, again, I know it's hard to say everyone's different. Right. There's always a reason why, and ours is more the question of what are you going to do about it? I think just making sure that our, our large businesses know that we are monitoring it, that we do want to know, and that we're willing to help them. Like you said, you get more more honey, more more flies with honey than you do with, with vinegar. And so for us, it's just to ask, to let them know that we care, we're watching, and we're willing to help. And so that's usually been my tactic, but I'm not opposed to taking, you know, a big stick and swinging it as well if we need to. I think a lot of small businesses are kind of glad to hear that you keep that big stick. You talk softly and carry the big stick, as I think Teddy Roosevelt may or may not have said, depending on <laughs> what history tells us. Uh, let me switch over to the broader idea. Uh, disawarded about $1.7 billion or so to about small businesses. There's some goals for 2022. Talk a little bit about your accomplishments and then talk about some of your plans for 2023, how you're building and, and, and continuing to meet your small business goals. 2022 was a great year. We did between 1.6 and 1.7 billion in direct awards to small businesses. That was over 28%, almost 28% of our spend, which was well ahead of our 25% goal. But we negotiated a lower goal because going forward, we have a lot of contracts that we're going to assume responsibility for that count against our percentage. It increases the denominator, which we can't really overcome based on our current requirements. We're taking on the JWCC. The 4ENO contracts are starting to come through, and those dollars are hitting our bottom line. My goal has always been to increase the top line, which is how many actual dollars. So that 1.6 to 1.7 from last year, can we do 1.8 this year? Um, to me, it's all about increasing the dollars we're awarding, no matter what our denominator is. Um, and that's always been my measure of success on can we increase how many dollars go into the banks and the pockets of our small business uh, prime contractors. Carlin Capenos is Director of Small Business Programs for the Defense Information Systems Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, we conclude our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, and we'll hear from Colette Peters, the Bureau of Prisons Director, and her plans to raise its employee engagement scores. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. We've been talking all week about the Bureau of Prisons, which ranks as the worst place to work in the federal government. That's according to annual listings derived from employee viewpoint survey results and compiled by the Partnership for Public Service. To finish the series, we took a look ahead today, and for her plans to improve work life for employees, we welcome the Bureau of Prisons Director, Colette Peters. Ms. Peters, good to have you with us. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Now, you have been here a year, which is getting you to be a kind of a long tenure for a Bureau of Prisons director in recent years. But what's your assessment of the agency in that lens of employee satisfaction, employee morale, and so forth? Well, it's only been 10 months, so I don't want to get out ahead of myself. But it's been an incredible 10 months. It's been a great welcome to the Bureau. It's been an incredible welcome from the Department of Justice. 
And our employees are tired. They were tired before the pandemic. This is one of the hardest law enforcement beats out there. The stressors that employees engage in are not unique to the Bureau of Prisons. It's in corrections generally, which I'm very familiar with. And so then the pandemic happened, overtime increased, augmentation increased, the economy changed and shifted our ability to hire, and views of law enforcement changed across this country during that time period. So it made recruitment even more difficult. So I think the first thing that we need to do, and we've been focused very diligently on, is staffing and getting the right people in the front door and getting us fully staffed. And then we'll be able to have significant conversations around employee wellness and Because you've got about a 6,000 shortfall in total staff authorization from Congress. And so you've really got a challenge on both ends. One is to get people to come in and join the agency as a correctional officer or someone who could serve as a correctional officer in some other capacity. And then you've got to keep people from leaving at at the back end. That's correct. We were able to, in this last hiring period near the end of the year, able to hire more people than we're actually leaving, but you're hitting the nail on the head. That is the ticket. We need to keep the people that we have, keep them employed, keep them engaged, and then focus on bringing the right people in that front door. Now, a parade of overseers has looked at the Bureau of Prisons. You've had the IG of the Justice Department, repeated reports, GAO, Greta Goodwin, and both of those people have been in the series. And they've had lots of recommendations for how to hire more people. What is your plan to get more people? What's the selling proposition for being a correctional officer? first, that parade of oversight, as you referred to, was welcomed. And so we've been working diligently to build that bridge between the Inspector General's office and GAO. As it relates to our plan for hiring, it's multifaceted. But I think first we have to change how we talk about ourselves. And we've been doing a lot of work in that regard. So we've been able to create some marketing tools that actually really describe what the Bureau of Prisons does for a living, and that is we have frontline, boots on the ground, dedicated people who are working to change hearts and minds. I think that the country often has a misperception and misconceptions around what happens inside of our prisons, and really taking the opportunity to tell the real story. You know, when you look at the research around this younger generation that's now coming into the workforce, They care less about salary. They care less about benefits. And they're more mission-driven. And so we couldn't be more mission-driven than we are at the Bureau of Prisons. So really focusing that in our recruitment tools in order to get the right people in these spots today. Yeah, my conversations with correctional officers really does show that, you know, don't call them guards because they really do buy into that idea that they're there to help people eventually get out of prison and be productive members of society. So somehow you have to sort of boomerang that or amplify that idea. I think that's absolutely right. So we've been doing, as we pivot out of the pandemic, the executive team now is able to do kind of climb up to that 40,000 foot level and do some strategic planning. And we've relooked at our mission and vision and core values. And we've added words that, that matter. I mean, the base of our mission isn't going to change. It's safety, security, and reentry. But to use words now like creating environments of normalcy and humanity, adding a core value called compassion, those types of things really speak to, I think, those officers that you've talked to and what they believe in and what they believe they do every single day. 
Now, there are practical issues. Some of the prisons are in rural areas where there's not a large population of choice to choose from to be correctional officers. Some of them are in inner cities and on fancy coasts near expensive shopping, you know, San Francisco, and therefore the cost of living is very high. Are you looking into hiring and salary flexibilities that frankly, many agencies have been pursuing the last couple of years to maybe try to calibrate the what you can offer and where you can move people across this interesting and complicated complex that you oversee. That's right. So every institution has its own hiring issues. Uh, you detail them very well. If you're in a rural community, often we are the biggest employer in those communities and we've saturated the market. There are literally no more warm bodies to interview and hire in those areas. And you're absolutely right. We located some of our institutions in areas that are now incredibly expensive. So when we are able to hire and retain those employees, some of them are driving an hour, two hours plus in order to live in a community that they can afford while working inside of our institutions. So we have leveraged recruitment bonuses, retention bonuses, and other incentives to hope that we can get additional people in and then, as you pointed out earlier, keep the people we have. We're speaking with Colette Peters. She is director of the Bureau of Prisons, part of the Justice Department. And what about that in by 37, out by 57 rule? A former warden Bob Hood mentioned this to me. It's not my own idea. Any chance that you could take someone who's 38 but has great, say, state-level experience that could still have a lot to offer the Bureau of Prisons, and by the same token, if someone's 57, they may have a couple of good years they could get you. You know, I think when I look at the wellness data, uh, we studied this significantly when I was the director of the Oregon Department of Corrections, and there's a reason why people are supposed to retire at 57, and it's because these jobs are so difficult. When you look at the data that we uncovered in Oregon, the average lifespan of a correctional officer after 20 years is 58. And so if we can get people to retire young, retire healthy after serving their country at the Federal Bureau of Prisons, I think that's really important. That being said, we have temporarily allowed people, we we are able to allow people to stay longer than their 57th birthday. And we have been taking advantage of that during this crisis. It is not a good long-term solution because of the stress and impact that these employees go through day in and day out. Just a detail question. I mean, my knowledge and most people's knowledge of prisons is zilch. Really, all you know is what you see on lurid television shows and sensational movies. And really, I don't know what it's like day to day, hour by hour in the average, if there is an average, institution. But are corrections officers in constant danger of being stabbed with a big pen? Or is it a little bit more of a copacetic day to day life? So our employees come to work every day knowing that they could be assaulted. The good news is they're not assaulted every day, but they have to be prepared for that. And so it can be more of a a slower job than I think uh, people are prepared for or the cortisol levels are prepared for. But I would suspect that if you talk to a correctional officer, they're going to tell you they haven't had an identical day yet. Every day is different. Every day presents different challenges. And so they have to be trained and ready to be on their toes and anticipate anything that might come their way. 
And one of the drivers across government generally for good employee engagement is when things come out well, when the mission is being achieved. And Congress, you know, statutorily imposed on the Bureau of Prisons some time ago to work on the recidivism rate. And there's been some issues whether the Bureau has been meeting those goals. So tell us how you plan to help fulfill that law, help fulfill the idea of care, custody, and goodbye, and we don't want to see you anymore part of the mission. And therefore, that would help maybe people buy in better. I laugh because whenever I meet with individuals in custody inside our institutions and I'm, you know, listening to their success story and the programs they've been in and the changes they're going to make, I say those exact words. I don't want to see you again. And that's that's the goal. Um, and that's why we changed our mission a little bit to talk about where you want to make good neighbors. The majority of these individuals are coming back to our communities. They're going to be our neighbors. So I don't want us wasting time and spending time making good inmates. We want to make good neighbors. And I think the First Step Act, as you point out, and the requirements to reduce recidivism is the focus. It was a difficult time during the pandemic when we had to shut down programs. We had to shut down education. We had to focus solely on the health care of those in our care and custody. But we're pivoting out of that now. And so as I travel across the country and tour our institutions, I'm just hearing a host of new ideas coming forward, a host of new programs being rolled out. And so in good order, we're going to be able to look at those changes and look at those improvements. But you're right. Our goal is to produce good neighbors. Now, Michael Horowitz said that he has dealt with 11 BOP directors in his 11 years as IG, and Ms. Goodwin at GAO said she's had six directors in six years of doing this type of work at GAO. You've got to be there more than 18 months or a year to be able to effectuate anything, and there's a change in administration. I mean, as a former corrections official in the state level, I mean, should this be a term appointment, or should you have five years to really start to get things changed? Oh, you know, I'd have to think about that. And I think probably there are folks higher up in the federal government that would have to express their opinion on that. But what I can tell you is you're absolutely right. Culture change takes between three to seven years, according to the research. And when I was director of the Department of Corrections in Oregon, I was director for 10 years and had been a sitting director for 13, having served the Oregon Youth Authority prior to my role with DOC. And I think it was that consistency and leadership that allowed us to continue pushing the same vision, the same outcomes forward. And so what I can say is you've got my commitment. I am committed to staying with the Bureau for a significant length of time to get this work done. And uh, I'm just honored to be in this role and look forward to fulfilling it to the best of my ability. And a final question, and, you know, you'll probably answer this equally, you know, well, but very often coming into an organization that has had lots of changes of leadership and some challenges over the years, there's kind of a sclerotic, if you will, that's my word, middle management or below the top management layer, that that's where the culture really has to change. And some of these folks might be saying, well, she'll be here another year and a half, and then somebody else will come along. You know, why should I put myself out? How do you drive that culture change through that layer so that it becomes apparent to the people right in the crucible, those officers, that things have really changed? 
Yeah, we refer to those as the weebies. We be here when you got here. We be here when you leave. Um, and what I tell people is that isn't what happened in Oregon. I was able to stay for 10 years. I hope I'm able to have a significant tenure here in order to make that happen. But you are absolutely right. Real change happens boots on the ground. It's the wardens that we need to lean into. It's the captains we need to lean into. It's the lieutenants that can really, really establish and set that culture. And so one of the negative things of the pandemic was we weren't able to get together as a bureau. So we were able to pull all of our wardens together just a few weeks ago in Colorado for their first in-person meeting. In five years, it was their first in-person meeting. And I heard from many of them that they felt alone. They felt like they were on an island by themselves. So we're working really hard to increase training now for our wardens, our captains and lieutenants, and making sure that we're having these personal conversations so that they're aligning with our vision. And I will tell you, the enthusiasm is there. They too are embarrassed and ashamed when they see those negative headlines, and they want to do their part to ensure that the community understands what corrections is really about, not just those horrible, egregious headlines by that one bad apple. We're speaking with Colette Peters. She is director of the Bureau of Prisons, part of the Justice Department. Now, there is another senior partner in this great endeavor, and that is Congress. And there is a bipartisan, I think, bicameral task force, if you will, or caucus on the Bureau of Prisons. So this is of concern to both parties. And one of the things that's come up in there is that the Bureau has not asked for enough money to do the maintenance and repair of facilities, which the crumbling of which is bad for both inmates and for the people that work there. Yeah, I think that what I'm learning from folks here inside the Bureau is that they simply didn't ask to the degree that they should because the monies weren't there, they had been denied before. What we really believe we need to do now is give the big ask. And so as it relates to staffing, we're figuring out what that ask is. As it relates to our facility structure, we're actually just released an RFP to ask an outside contractor to come in with an outside set of eyes to do an analysis of all of our structural deficits. Right now, we're using this $2 billion number, saying we have a $2 billion deficit around facilities. But if you look at what's on that $2 billion list, it's only our prioritized list. It's only things that fall into a life and safety category. So it's not the smaller things that are broken. This assessment is going to do the the entire assessment, the entire ask. And when we look at that $2 billion number, even though we've gotten that out there again and again, what we received this last fiscal year was $80 million to solve that $2 billion program, or problem, excuse me. And so our facilities folks are constantly reprioritizing that list on what is the most severely broken thing today that needs to be fixed. So I hope that we can get to a future state where we have a better assessment and more appropriate dollars to fix some of these structural issues. I guess if you tell them that you're going to make a particular prison solar powered, you'll get all the money you need. Well, I I haven't tried that. Maybe that's something that we need to try. I don't know. (laughs) And uh, well, any other final thoughts? 
you know, I just, I really appreciate some of your comments, this notion that the world doesn't understand what we do in corrections, and they base it on shows like Shawshank Redemption or Orange is the New Black. We really are trying to do something special here and unique at the Federal Bureau of Prisons, and we want to be the guiding light in corrections. We want to create an environment that is humane and normal for those in our care and custody, which also will mean a better work environment for our employees, these folks that have given their lives and career and dedicated that life to serving their country. So we we hope to have uh, improved and better outcomes, and I think we're marching in the right direction. Colette Peters is director of the Bureau of Prisons. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll post this interview along with all of our interviews in this series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, which we hope will get better, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, as a postscript to this series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, a one-time inmate shows the federal prison system can and often does achieve its mission. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Today we conclude our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government. We've been focusing all week on the Bureau of Prisons, part of the Justice Department. The Bureau's stated mission, in part, is to, quote, provide reentry programming to ensure inmates' successful return to the community. It talks about custody and care, not jails and guards. Does it ever succeed? Our next guest shows what's possible. He was convicted of manslaughter, did part of a sentence in Florence, Colorado's Supermax, and has returned to society and now works for juvenile sentencing reform. Eddie Ellis joins me in studio. Eddie, good to have you with us. Nice to be here, Tom. And just give us the brief outlines of your life that led to prison and back out of it. Okay, thank you. Uh, as, as a young person, I you know, was caught up around the wrong things uh, at times, and I ended up getting in trouble at the age of 16. Someone uh, pulled a gun on me, and uh, I had a gun, and I defended myself, and they unfortunately lost their life that day. And I take full responsibility uh, for what took place that day. You know, but as a 16-year-old child, I didn't understand what was taking place, what was happening. I was just confused about everything. You know, and as a child, I lost my father to gun violence. You know, and, and sometimes in these situations, hurt people can still hurt people. You know, and as a child, um, that's what ended up happening. Someone got hurt because of my actions. And so you were tried and convicted as a juvenile? Mm -mm, As an adult. That is to say you were juvenile age, but tried and and convicted as an adult. Yes, I was 16 years old when I was arrested, and I was Title 16 and charged as an adult. And then what happened? Where were you sentenced to? I faced 75 years to life, uh, found guilty on on manslaughter. And because of the victim impact statement, the judge ended up giving me 22 years instead of like 35, 40 years because the victim impact statement asked the judge to have leniency on us because we were children. And that's what the judge did. And I ended up serving 15 years in prison, seven years on parole. And I've been home since 2006. Now, you went to which prison initially? Initially, I went to D.C. jail. Then I went to Lorton when Lorton was still open in Lorton, Virginia. Then I was transferred to uh, Youngstown, Ohio, to a privatized prison there. They sent us back to Lawton, to the Supermax unit, where that was still open. Then I went to uh, Red Onion in Pound, Virginia. Then from Red Onion, I was sent to uh, the Supermax in Florence, Colorado. And yeah, then, what transpired to get you from there to Florence? Because that's where 
you know, the really tough people go and it's all day solitary, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, as D.C. prisons were closing, they were only able to send you to prisons that were still open. And if you had max custody on you, when you be sent out to other prisons, you continue to have that max status on you. And that's why I was sent to Red Onion. But over the years, I got in fights to defend myself and protect myself at times. But it was because I still had that max status on me and I was sent to Red Onion. And then from Red Onion, I was sent to uh, Supermax. And I stayed there uh, from 2000 to 2006. And I went to Lewisburg uh, for my last days and, uh, and I came home. And how would you describe the experience in terms of the staff of prisons as a, for lack of a better word, their customer, their client, as an inmate? What's your overall experience there? I mean, they must vary a lot, but some guards did try to help, didn't they? Yeah, it, it, it varies. I, I, say, I always say this, you always have bad apples everywhere. Uh, but I met a few people there that worked there who were good people, who treated me like a human being understand that the bad choice that I made as a 16-year-old child didn't have anything to do with them, and they were professional enough to, you know, address me as a human. And I really appreciated that, you know, and I always talk about those in the system who, you know, I ran across who were good people. We're speaking with Eddie Ellis. He's a former Bureau of Prisons inmate, now Director of Outreach at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. And In the Supermax, I mean, that's a notorious place. Even the former warden has been on television over the years talking about it. We know some, you know, El Chapo is there and so forth, and some of the traitors to the country from the intelligence community and the FBI. And people are 23 hours locked up. And when you are outside, it's like in the bottom of a swimming pool, and there's lots of detail you can find out about that particular facility. But yet you found from the warden all the way down to some of the staff that there was caring, even in the Supermax? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have people in places that still can care despite of the places that they're in. And uh, I just tried to just do my time and, you know, and deal with people, you know, when I needed to deal with them and I stayed out the way. And I just prepared myself because I knew that a prison couldn't change me. I had to change myself uh, in order to come out here in the world and, and do the things I'm doing today. So that's what I did. Any program that I was allowed to take, I took the programming, you know, started to change the way I read, who I communicated with. And I changed my life, you know. But uh, I tell people all the time, a prison is nothing but a building. And if you're sitting there without doing anything, you will not prepare yourself. But I prepared myself to be out here almost 17 years later. And in recent years, there has been statutory requirements from Congress for the Bureau to offer programs to make sure that people don't come back and try to help train them for life outside again. Was there any kind of programming in those days? No, not when I came home. I'm going to be honest with you. The program they gave me was banking skills, and I didn't have no money to put in no bank, so it was useless <laughs> to me. But I prepared myself. Like I said, I prepared myself the best way that I could have, uh, made sure my mind was in the right places. Again, continue to read things that was helping me prepare for the world as much as I can, communicate with my family and loved ones about things that I wanted to do when I come home. And when I came home, that's what I did. I stayed on track, and I've been advocating for programs to go back in the federal prison and prisons to help people. Sure. And what's your best advice for prison staff, again, from the standpoint of an inmate, and we'll call it a client right now, because the ones I've spoken to do have some sense of mission about this. They don't see the prisoners as undifferentiated masses either. I just say, you know, we understand that some people are there for choices they made and some people are not. Treat people like you want to be treated, you know, and, and that's it. Because the reality of prison is this. 
it's more of us inside of a jail than it is God's at any time. You know, and I tell people 90 percent of people in jail don't want to get in trouble again. You know, they don't. Sure. They want to do something different, you know, but it's environmental things that don't allow them things to happen sometimes. Just think about some people who are in the Federal Bureau of Prisons who were juveniles that sentenced to life without parole, right, who can't get certain programs in prisons because they got life without parole. But how do those people prepare themselves, right? Are we going to create opportunities for those people who were children, 17 and younger, to get an opportunity to come home? As long as we prepare people to come home, we're giving them the resources that they need. But if we're not giving them the resources, how do we expect people to do, you know, what most college kids can't do without resources? So the work you're doing is more upstream of the prison system itself in the area of sentencing and the deliverance of justice. Yeah, I think, you know, the work that we do is try to, you know, ban life without parole nationally for children that's 17 and younger. And with those bills that's filed, we're not saying that, you know, children shouldn't be held accountable, but you know, appropriate accountability, right? And if a child make a horrible decision, they're not today now an adult. They're still a child. It's things that we can do, you know, to help, you know, in these situations. And, you know, we got almost a thousand people home, you know, that was sentenced to life without parole, you know, as children who are doing wonderful work. Sure. You know, I work with a lot of people across the country. I work with over 240 people who were sentenced to extreme sentences as children across the country who are doing wonderful work in the community, and, uh, and I feel like the work that we do, it makes us feel a part of the community. You know, it's something that we want to do. And so people could be sentenced as juveniles. And if they get parole in that sentencing, they are therefore in the federal prison system with a chance of getting out at some point. And that's what you feel where the delivery of these kinds of services, education, help to get them to that parole point and then stay out. Yes. As we know, education opened up another world for us. You know, and if we prepare them, you know, the way that we can as a system, you know, we can prepare them to come home in ways of going into jobs, to coming home and being law-abiding citizens, living their life however they choose to live it in a positive way. But again, if we're not putting resources there for them to do that, then it's kind of like talking out both sides of our head. We want the community to be safe, but yet... We choose not to put the resources there to help a person prepare themselves. So, again, I prepared myself. The system didn't do it. And I'm proud of who I am with the support I've had. And um, I'm going to do the work that I'm doing to advocate, you know, until the day I die, you know. Eddie Ellis is a former Bureau of Prisons inmate, now director of outreach at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview, along with all of the interviews in our series, The Worst Place to Work in the Federal Government, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. If Treasury runs out of money to pay all of the government's bills because of the debt limit impasse, what would it actually mean for federal agencies and employees? Well, no one's exactly sure because it's never happened before. But two influential organizations want answers before things get to that point. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, one is taking the government to court over it. A federal judge in Massachusetts will hear oral arguments next Wednesday on whether the death limit itself violates the Constitution. The plaintiff is the National Association of Government Employees. The union's emergency petition asked the court to order the government to continue paying federal paychecks and retirement obligations, even if Congress doesn't vote to increase the debt ceiling. 
Not just that, the union is also asking the court to rule that the debt ceiling violates the constitutional separation of powers. Their argument is that under current law, the president would be forced to unilaterally make decisions on how federal money is spent, because if he abides by the debt limit, the Treasury wouldn't have enough cash to make all the payments Congress has already authorized. NAGE argues that deciding which bills to pay and not pay amounts to a line-item veto, something the Supreme Court ruled was unconstitutional during the Clinton administration. David Berto, the president of the Professional Services Council, a trade association that's not involved in the case, agrees the debt limit statute puts the president in something of an impossible situation. He can only abide by the debt limit by violating other laws. You know, Article 1, Section 9 says uh, essentially uh, no funds should be dispersed except on appropriation. Of course, Supreme Court decisions when uh, when Richard Nixon tried to uh, to fail to pay uh, such appropriations, fail to spend them. Supreme Court decision said the reverse is also true. If it's appropriated, you have to spend it. Uh, the Trump administration defied that and basically said, let the Supreme Court enforce its own rules. Um, but uh, but that is still a, a constitutional interpretation is there. If money's appropriated, it has to be it has to be obligated and expended. Uh, also, though, the president has under Article two, uh, the requirement to faithfully execute the laws. And one of those laws is, in fact, you can't exceed the debt ceiling. So somewhere in there, you can't do both. Right. And there will have to be some choices. Nonetheless, PSC argues the administration needs to give agencies and federal contractors some clarity on what those choices would be if indeed the Treasury runs out of adequate cash to pay the government's bills. Even though the government has reached the brink of a default crisis numerous times before, there is still no playbook at all for how the federal government would operate. Stephanie Castro, PSC's vice president for policy, says there are whispers of informal guidance at the agency level, but each agency seems to be thinking about the problem a little bit differently. It's quite inconsistent across the government, and so you've got some agencies treating this like a shutdown, like you said thinking about stop work orders, thinking about all of that, um, determining who's essential and who's not. We've got other agencies thinking that, oh, we have appropriations, therefore we have the cash. And that's not exactly what the situation means. And then we've got a third subset of folks who are waiting for OMB to come with guidance. And so I think the the idea of having OMB guidance at a high level um, to help restore or maintain faith and, and trust and confidence in the U.S. government's ability to operate it's also true at the agencies. They want to, to have guidance so that they have faith and trust and confidence that they can continue to do their jobs. One possible reason we haven't seen that kind of guidance yet is that the White House's official position is that a fault can't happen. President Biden speaking in the Rose Garden yesterday afternoon. I made clear time and again defaulting on our national debt is not an option. The American people deserve to know that the Social Security payments will be there. The Veterans Hospital remain open. And that economic progress will be made, and we're going to continue to make it. Default puts all that at risk. Congressional leaders understand that, and they've all agreed there will be no default. But with only about a week to go before a potential default situation, PSC argues it's irresponsible not to plan for that eventuality and to give agencies clarity about what would happen. For one thing, Berto says OMB needs to make clear that a default situation is very different from a government shutdown. In this case, agencies still have legally authorized appropriations for the rest of the fiscal year. It's just that the Treasury wouldn't have enough cash on hand to pay those obligations when they're due. We know it's not a government shutdown. It's not an absence of appropriations. There's plenty of appropriations. What we propose is that there's a risk uh, uh, to the government, in fact, to, to, to far more than just the federal government, to the entire global economic structure of uh, if America were to default. And to minimize that risk, 
It requires the government to act in ways that maximize the maintenance of the trust and faith in the government uh, of the government going forward. One of the ways in which we think that can be done is to keep the government fully operating every mission, every function, every activity continue going. This is sort of the opposite of what you do in a government shutdown where you decide what's essential and what's not essential, what needs to keep going and what needs to not keep going. It's our view and our advice to OMB that in order to send the most powerful signal, not only domestically, but globally, the government needs to continue fully operating and fully functioning. In its letter to OMB, PSC also asked the administration to make clear how spending prioritization decisions would happen in a scenario when there's not enough cash to go around. Berto says those decisions should be made by the president each day. Some agencies are under the impression that they would have the flexibility to make prioritization decisions on their own. We know that past plans have shown that the number one thing they'll be spent on is principal and interest on treasuries, right? Because that's the basis of the global financial marketplace and it's the basis of the global economy. And America doesn't want to either have that fall apart or have our role in that start to diminish, right? Uh, so, and, and we know that plans were built in the past to do exactly that. Principal and interest comes first. Okay, what comes second? We have agencies that have told us, we think we can pay all our bills. They sort of forget that they don't write the checks. The Treasury Department writes the checks. They just have a 23-digit fund site that they sent off to Treasury for those checks to be issued. And so there needs to be that kind of planning across the board for prioritization. And we think OMB should remind agencies that the only place those priorities are set is from the White House, is by direction of the president, that individual programs and individual agencies should not be making prioritization decisions. That needs to be done across the federal government. In the absence of a public plan from the White House, PSC says it's been doing its best to advise companies on what they should be doing to prepare for a default crisis. Berto says, assuming that there would be a prioritization process, the best thing vendors can do is make sure their invoices are submitted as quickly as possible. There's at least an assumption that if your invoices aren't in, they're not going to be in line, right? And so our advice is keep your invoices current, keep your invoices being submitted, and most importantly, follow up with the agencies after you've submitted the invoices to make sure there are no unanswered questions and that they're ready to approve those invoices, Our second line was talk to your customers. They're probably not going to get guidance from on high, at least not right away. Raise your concerns with them. Tell them what you're worried about. Ask them what they're thinking about. Ask them what they need from you to be able to make the case internally, to be able to have the decisions that they need to make in order to keep the programs operating and going. And the third is to pay attention to your cash situation. One of the things that we saw during the 35-day partial government shutdown is even companies, even if they had a line of credit that was existing and had additional capital you could draw from it, that banks tightened up as their risk picture changed, as the government shutdown continued into the second week, into the third week, into the fourth week, with no clear idea of when it was going to end. The financial institutions started tightening up. We are already hearing from our member companies that that is happening in some cases. This would be particularly damaging and devastating to small businesses that just don't have the access to cash that a large business does or the reserves in place to do that. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 